This episode of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by The Intrepid Group, the company making travel a genuine force for good. As you know, in this pod, we talk a lot about how to partner with and have a positive impact on communities all over the world. Having spent the past eight years travelling through some of the most spectacular and challenging countries, I know for sure tourism is one of the greatest forces for good, when done properly. Intrepid is a certified B Corp, specialising in sustainable small group travel, offering over 2,700 trips through four tour-operator brands. I've done an Intrepid tour in Myanmar, and I can tell you they deliver on their commitment to responsible tourism. They are committed to working with local guides, to reducing their environmental footprint and giving back to the people and places they visit. Visit intrepidgroup.travel and change the way you see the world. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Welcome to episode 35 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I have Luke Brannigan. Luke joined the JB Weir Philanthropic Services team in March 2015. Prior to joining JB Weir, Luke was the executive manager of the MLC Community Foundation, where he led the evolution of the strategic direction of the foundation to focus on mental health outcomes. During Luke's tenure, the foundation was awarded a philanthropic leader in measuring social outcomes driven by innovative approaches to measurement and impact investment. Luke was also a member of NAB's Corporate Responsibility Leadership Team, and prior to this role, Luke led the community program at the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, and for the last five months, Luke has been a board director at Batia. Luke, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Rachel. Would you mind explaining how you came to be in the role that you're in now? Yes, certainly. So I've been in the what I'd call the for-purpose sector, if you like, more in the intermediary and corporate space for the last 15 years. My my original career was um, in IT and I was doing um, primarily help desk and um, sort of uh, second level support type roles. And um, I had a bit of a crisis of purpose, like I think many people do in the sector, where I just, um, I was fixing someone's computer to make them wealthier tomorrow. So I, um, I decided that that really wasn't doing it for me anymore. And fortunately, I was working for Bain & Company, the uh, management consultancy, and they, um, they established the Australian Charities Fund. So that was my first foray into the sector. The beauty of um, ACF, which is now Workplace Giving Australia, was that it was a great introduction to both um, what corporates are doing from a for-purpose community investment perspective and and also a great introduction into the full breadth of charities within the sector. So so I did that for four years. Uh, Then I stepped across to um, to ASIC um, and did a community investment role at ASIC. It's not particularly well known um, outside of ASIC that there's a community investment program, but um, ASIC employees are very engaged from a fundraising and a pro bono legal perspective. 
and I ran that for a few years um, under the previous chairman, which was Tony Delasio. Uh, from there, as you said, I, I ran the MLC Foundation, which was a um, unique um, opportunity. Uh, MLC uh, is now the NAMP Foundation, um, and it's it's essentially a private charitable trust, which was at the time focused on mental health outcomes. Um, so that was a great opportunity to um, get into the grant-making side of mental health and really kind of embed and understand that, that sector better. Um, and as you mentioned, we were trying to be a bit innovative as well, that we um, we weren't just focused on philanthropic capital. We were also looking at the investment capital of, of the um, of the charitable trust as well and trying to focus more on, you know, how could we create outcome from philanthropy, but also how could we create outcomes through through the impact investment side of the trust as well. Um, whereas my, my current job, um, I've got there finally, is... Uh, is um, a director of philanthropic services uh, at JB Weir. So, so JB Weir is a, um, a private wealth investment management house that's been around for 178 years, so um, a very old institution in Australia. Um, primarily, we're a high net wealth um, uh, investment house, but, but I and our team specialise um, in an area called philanthropic services. So, so our clients are both philanthropists, um, individuals and families that run private ancillary funds or corporate foundations, plus also charities that are fortunate enough to have assets. I mean, there's about 60,000, you know, charities in Australia and a large amount of those don't have investable assets. But those of um, those charities that are fortunate to have investable assets, um, they're our clients as well. So, so we manage um, roughly about $8 billion of assets specifically in the in the for-purpose sector, both philanthropy and, and charities and, and other entities that are um, that are working on mission. So that also includes um, membership associations, all type of different entities. Anyone that's really a fiduciary sitting on a board managing assets for other people, that they're our clients. I'm trialing yeah. a new question that I want to ask at the outset of our interviews. Um, mm. And that is why is what you do important? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So uh, our team believes um, that, that, you know, it's it's very important that JBWE manages the assets of our clients appropriately and well, and I, and I believe it does that. But, but we're part of a dedicated team that is really there to help our clients on their mission. I mean, charities and philanthropists, um, the primary mission really is to serve their beneficiaries and to do greater good in society. So the reason hopefully you would go to JB Weir from an investment management house perspective is A, the investment returns and the risk adjusted returns, but B, it's access to our team and the ability of our team to help you um, deliver better on your mission. So that might be helping uh, philanthropists and their families decide on what charities they want to support or ethical investment or impact investment, or it might be helping a lot of larger charities, um, you know, to delve into how they best fundraise, how can they target private ancillary funds, you know, how can they better serve their beneficiaries? So to answer the question briefly, I'd say that um, uh, why I do what I do is because I want to have purpose and I believe working with our clients, that gives me the purpose to create additional social change. Okay, so to loop this back to the big picture, I would say 10 years ago, if we were having a conversation about how impact investment and private wealth could benefit the not-for-profit sector, 
it probably would have seemed a bit foreign because I think 10 years ago the not-for-profit sector was still quite situated in this uh, government funding and also sort of public donation mindset. And I think that's, of course, an oversimplification, but the point I'm making is we've really seen some major shifts in how the not-for-profit sector is financed over the last 10 years. And the purpose of this podcast, in large part, is to look at how partnering with the private sector can make a really meaningful impact on the not-for-profit sector. So from that lens, I'm I'm interested in your view on how uh, finance and particularly um, private wealth has um, changed the landscape for -for not-for-profits in recent years. Um, So JB Weir itself wrote a report called the Cause Report, which actually does a deep dive into the funding of the not-for-profit sector. And I, th- I think it's 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 really interesting that you think about um, about 40% of the funding comes from government, um, whereas self-earned or the business generation component of charities is roughly about 55%. And philanthropy is only really small. It's only 8% of the actual revenue of the whole sector. So th- that varies greatly from different subsectors within the sector, but that's the overall, you know, 56,000 odd charities in Australia. So, so to answer your question, I think it's 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 still evolving, um, but but there's there's two kind of ways I think it's evolving. You've got the the, the business component and the self generation component of charities. So so I, th- I think the public quite often thinks of charities as purely just being charitable donations from the public and government, but 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 many charities and many subsectors within the sector you know, very good at running their own businesses. And essentially they are just essentially another corporation, but they're also delivering social outcomes, which they have to prove to keep their charitable status. So I think that that's, um, that's increasing and, and the smarter organisations are really trying to diversify their revenue streams to make sure that they can better self-generate um, and looking how they can actually be more of a business themselves. Um, from the philanthropic capital side, I'd say that that's where, you know, the, the high net wealth is is stepping in as well. Historically, I think um, individuals were very um, traditional in their grant making and, and they would have given to an organisation with the view that the, um, the organisation would have then delivered um, its services or delivered on the outcomes. Whereas now I think that people are um, excited by the opportunity of because um, philanthropic capital is limited and it's risk capital, the question is how do we best use that capital? And I think the exciting thing about impact investment is it's um, you can recycle the capital um, and it can create you know new entities within itself. So um, I, I think the exciting part of um, philanthropy and impact investment is the ability to scale um, charities that, that wasn't previously there. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, um, I've recently become very passionate about financial literacy and actually breaking down the sorts of words that we use when we discuss um, finances for the not-for-profit sector because I think mm. there's, there's a lot of words and, and it sounds like you need an economics degree to understand them and for a lot of people that work in the not-for-profit sector, as you would know, they just simply don't have that level of financial literacy or perhaps they do um, and it's just me that doesn't. Um, but either way, um, you said there that philanthropic capital is risk capital and that it's limited. So could you explain what you mean by that? 
Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, it's not just you. I think um, <laughs> you. I think the I think the finance industry is designed um, to exclude other other parties, and, and I think the um, the acronyms and the vocabulary is is such a language in itself. It's like when I worked back in IT, there were so many different systems that when you first started a job at a place, you didn't understand it for a year because you had to understand the in-house systems. I think. Um, you know, our financial terminology is, it, it should be built more into our schooling, I, I believe, because it, it's not necessarily that hard, but it is um, so, um, it's not inclusive because people just don't understand and they shut down. And, and I think the, um, the terminology also makes it dry and, and not interesting as well. So, um, but to, to come back to your question, I think that um, it, it, essentially, I, I think, the, I mean, when I was saying before, you know, the, the, the charitable sector has, you know, roughly about $200 billion of, of income each, each year. So um, essentially only about 8% of that is from philanthropy. So we, when you consider w- what income is coming through philanthropy, it's quite small in the overall funding. So we really need to think of what, what, what does the philanthropic capital do? So, I mean, we know governments are... I mean, they're quite um, – people talk down governments, but, I mean, I, I think governments do a lot of great things, really, and, and I think that's a problem with the sector that we really talk about government's funding not being sophisticated, whereas I think a lot of government funding and measurement can be sophisticated. Um, but governments essentially don't like to take risk, do they? So they don't like to um, invest in a new project that's unproven, um, so, and essentially most of the income and assets are travelling to the larger entities – so you would see that most of the government funding is going to large organisations. So then you've got the self-generation or the business opportunity um, type capital. So um, obviously, if you're a charity, you're limited. You can get debt capital, but you can't get equity. Um, so do you take on debt? Many and probably the majority of charities aren't willing to take that risk. So what is the role of philanthropy? The role of philanthropy may, for me is the ability to... to invest in things that haven't been done previously, to take risk, to fail, to scale, to do all of those things. So it's a limited source of capital, so we should use it um, at the pointy end of the system. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so I suppose the potential for growth is higher, but the potential for risk is also higher? That's correct, I'd say. And for me, that's kind of the blending of philanthropic capital because, I mean, essentially philanthropy is total risk anyway. It's, it's lost capital. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's 100% social outcomes, if you like, but it's 100% loss in terms of that you're granting that money and you're not expecting anything back. But, but there's, with the evolution of impact investing, that's where you're kind of playing across the spectrum where you might be granting that money, but you might be also investing a portion of that money. And that's more that blended capital or stack capital approach where you can have first loss philanthropy. You could even have below market returns from, you know, a philanthropist or maybe someone else. And then you could have, you know, normal uh, or traditional returns, if you like, based on how the transaction is created. Right. Okay, so to illustrate this with a real-life example, I, kn- I know that in your case you work with both the private wealth 
uh, site, which might be a family foundation or or the like, but you also work with the not-for-profits that need to develop a more robust investment policy to attract um, the kind of investment that we're discussing. Um, so correct me if I've got any of that wrong, but to illustrate that with a with an example, um, a family foundation with $100 million might approach you. Um, how would you go about supporting them? Yes, Elaine. No, no, it's a great question. So if it was a $100 million foundation, firstly, they'd probably be a private ancillary fund. So, so a private ancillary fund, or PAFs, as they commonly know, um, would have to distribute legally 5% of the corpus the following financial year. And that would have to go to deductible gift recipient one charities. So, so that's the grant making side of the PAF. So, so essentially, if we were working with them, we, we would ask them questions about what is the purpose um, of the foundation and what are you trying to achieve? So first of all, they've got the legal requirements. But secondly, they might be looking to achieve um, other, other factors within, within their investments as well. So, so they know that they have to get a certain return to distribute the 5%. They might look at, you know, getting a larger return so they could distribute more. And we also know that the, you know, the average private ancillary fund distribution is actually close to 8%. So many of the paths are actually distributing more than what they legally have to. So, so we could help the family probably in two ways. We could help them from the charitable distribution side, firstly. So if they wanted to understand the sector better or the subsector that they're funding say they might be interested in indigenous we might be able to help them with different indigenous organizations quite often we have discussions where certain family members have voting rights so you might have children that are focused on environmental issues you might have parents that are focused on indigenous or welfare issues so first of all that's the grant making side then on the investment side that's where you get into a conversation of um, ethical um, ESG and also impact investing. So, so the first thing for them to consider is um, how much risk they're willing to take and what return objective they have. So, so we would help them from a traditional private wealth perspective, if you like, um, create a, um, a risk and return objective that would then align with an asset allocation which would give them the ability to make those distributions. But then if they are actually also thinking about what's the purpose within the investment corpus, then we get into conversations of firstly ethical. Uh, Are there anything that they wouldn't invest in because it contradicts with their values? Um, And then ESG, environmental, social and governance, do, as JB Weir believes that, um, you know, focusing in on ESG risks give you better longer term performance. So that's part of our processes, but they might be interested in exploring that further. <clears throat> and excuse me, the final opportunity is, are they interested in trying to find opportunities that are also going to give them positive social or environmental returns with a financial return um, within the investment corpus as well? And that's kind of the new and final frontier that we're still, I mean, I think everyone's still learning and trying to evolve within the sector. I guess the ethical paradox there is if you choose to invest in 
traditional um, sources, which could be the mining sector um, or it could be investing in companies with no female board directors, um, that sort of investment might result in a higher return than if you're investing in ethically, right? So not investing in mining companies and only investing in organisations with female representation on their board, etc. But I guess the irony is if you choose to invest... Uh, in a more ethical way that might produce a lower return, that's then less money that can be directed to the charitable sector. Is that is that sort of a paradox that comes up a lot? It's it's a great question, and it's I mean I think it's the real paradox. You, I mean you'll still have directors of entities that, and especially charities, that will say we just want to maximise the return through our investment mandate so that we can fund our mission. Whereas you'll get other people that will say, you know, our stakeholders um, and our beneficiaries are really important to us and we shouldn't invest in anything that clashes with their expectations. So you kind of got two really different schools of thought there. I I would say to to your question, um, most of the the things that are, are deemed ethical, if you like, um, and especially the, the female board representation, most of the studies would show that if you don't have any female directors um, over the longer term, you're going to underperform. So for, for me, that in itself is a, an argument that, um, and we've had it with the Corporate Foundation, they, they were looking at putting a 25% um, minimum female director um, uh, a caveat on their investment policy, so they wouldn't invest in companies if they didn't have twenty five percent or more female directors. So, so we're starting to see that type of thing come through. Um, when you get into mining, that's where it gets a bit more interesting because, I mean, materials is such a large part of the Australian economy, um, and it's a, such a large part of the you know the ASX. Essentially, if you were to exclude that, um, there would be certain points of time where you would underperform um, the the ASX 200. And there's other points of time where you would probably outperform based on how materials are travelling. So so that's a potential conversation you need to have. If you become overly exclusionary, by by essence, you're essentially removing things you can invest in. And the greater reduction of things you can invest in, the more financial risk you put within an investment portfolio. So, So... so the way we normally would approach it is we would talk to either the family or the charity and say, you know, what are your values and what are the really important things that clash with your values? And and because we've got some great tools, um, we've got a partnership with MSCI, we can actually run different exclusion thresholds and show them how much they're going to remove from their investment universe. So so if, if they're taking out five companies of the 200 that's not potentially a big deal if you're taking out 40 or 50 companies of the 200 then you're reducing or adding financial risk so so a lot of the times um with charities especially we're asking what are the issues that materially clash with your beneficiaries so so if it's a disability charity um maybe climate change is not directly related you might have directors that are really strong um, and opinionated and want to exclude fossil fuel companies, and that might be totally appropriate. But you couldn't say there's a direct correlation between disability service provision and climate change, whereas if you're an environmental organisation, 
if you weren't considering probably climate as a factor, then maybe you may be remiss as well, I would say. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I hadn't considered that enough. But uh, the investments that you choose to exclude should, of course, mirror the, the mission of your organisation. So I think that's a really good explanation of the thought that a family foundation would put into um, their investment mandate. I think the step from there that I want to understand better is I I completely agree with your point that we need to not be too quick to criticise government funding. Um, I would say broadly um, government funding is less than what it was um, in Mm. particular sectors. However, um, there are still uh, many very sophisticated um, funding mechanisms within the government. What I would say, though, is that when applying for government funding, the requirements are often very rigorous for -for not-for-profits and then on an ongoing basis evaluating their programs also um, presents some very uh, rigorous and often requires a full-time person just to meet that evaluation need. And that's not often the case uh, with philanthropic support. Um, Would you agree and sort of what compliance requirements are usually asked of not-for-profits who are receiving philanthropic funding? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, over the last sort of five years, I think that uh, a lot of, um, I mean, philanthropy for me is an education. So so, so you've got a large amount of new um, private ancillary funds, perhaps, that are established, and that, they're probably not asking anything, to be honest. They're more just grant making, um, and they're not asking for any type of reporting back, or m- many of them aren't. Uh, whereas... If you're looking at, say, the older private charitable trusts, where you're looking at um, foundations that have been around for quite a long time, like, you know, the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation or Sal Terry's or the Meyer family, those type of foundations, because they're staffed by sophisticated teams, they're quite, um, they're, they've been on this journey for quite a while and, and they, they're quite adept at asking for social outcome measurement. Uh, so, so I think it very much depends on the sophistication of the philanthropist, but but I also think that with that sophistication also comes a responsibility, because because as we know, uh, social outcome measurement costs money, um, and it takes time, and and you want to do it properly. So I, I would say that the the smarter foundations that are doing it are also um, putting some capacity or capability funding into their grants as well. So they're actually including that. So it might be to fund an external consultant or to get, you know, the team up to scratch internally. Um, Because, I mean, my perspective is that a lot of the time charities do social outcome measurement for funders, whereas they should be doing it to better their own programs. Um, You know, it's, it's an efficiency game because if they can better understand what they're doing well and what they're not doing well, then they're going to be a better run charity. Yeah, great point. So if I am running a not-for-profit and I want to diversify our funding streams and I want to make us more attractive to philanthropic funding, what would be some of the steps I would need to take internally to do that? Yeah, so philanthropic funding is a, a wheel of opportunity. So uh, the team, John McLeod from our team, wrote the support report and that really deep dives into philanthropy in Australia. So about half the philanthropic pie in Australia is mass market giving. So 
Um, it's a large amount of capital that comes through mass market, which is pretty much, you know, street fundraising, mail-outs, every type of, you know, fundraising that's kind of um, event-based, if you like, and mass market-based. The, um, the issue with that space, it's increasingly crowded and compressed, um, and and it seems to be uh, declining, of anything. So, so I would say figure out if you're attractive to the mass market and then really get your ask right in the mass market space. But the space we really talk to as a team is the other half of the pie, and the other half of the pie is bequests, uh, private ancillary funds that we touched on, uh, public ancillary funds, private charitable trusts, which are those older foundations that we touched on, plus also corporates. So all of those segments are growing, and they're all growing um, substantially, but, but the complexity of each of those is they all have different R's. So bequests is very much a long game. It's very lumpy funding, um, and it's very relationship-driven. So many sophisticated fundraising teams will talk to you about a donor journey where they'll start from a, you know, original sort of um, mail-out type campaign, then they move to, you know, high net wealth sort of gifts, then bequests is part of their ask. But you will have teams that are staffed by, you know, one, two people that just focus in on bequests and are really sophisticated in that space. Private ancillary funds and public ancillary funds and the charitable trusts, those, um, they're all primarily high net wealth individuals. So how do you, um, first of all, establish a relationship with these individuals and how do you get your ask right for them? That That's, you know, one of the key questions. Um, we say there's about 1,700 paths. So it's um, they're, they're not hidden, but they're not obvious as well. So how do you meet these people? How do you know that they care about the cause area that you're, that you're in? And how do you get your ask right? So it's something that actually appeals to them. They're, normally, they're very commercial people. That's how they're high net wealth. So um, appealing to them with maybe just a traditional charitable approach might work or it might not work. So how do you how do you tailor your ask to them as well? And then the final one is the corporate. So corporate funding is actually growing, and, and I think that's really interesting. Um, but I think it's moving from a corporate philanthropy perspective to more a, you know, shared value type what's what's the benefit to the corporation as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's two questions that I have for you out of that. I think the first one is when you talk about tailoring your ask, um, I completely agree. And to me, that would sound as though it you couldn't do that across the board. Like if there are, I think you said 1,700 paths uh you couldn't really have an ask that would appeal to all 1700 of those so you'd have to have a way of kind of sizing up the market and narrowing it down to the the group of of private ancillary funds that best align with your purpose so how is that just a case of networking or how would you go about doing that it's it's the number one question we get asked as a team because obviously um you know, all 56,000 charities want to meet the 1,800 paths in Australia. <laughs> they all want to meet them. Um, the good thing is that the, the data is there in terms of their names uh, and you can actually buy path lists and the like. The problem you then got is trying to, as you say, find out are they in my cause area? Um, and then even if they're in my cause area, what's my ask of them? 
So that's where it gets much harder. And to be honest, I still really think it is a relationship game. It's 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 board members, directors, ambassadors, um, other connections, a lot of events. Uh, how, do, how do you get private ancillary funds to attend our events? How do you start a relationship with them? Um, or even the consideration, which we've seen with some charities, uh, charities shouldn't be scared of their own donors establishing private ancillary funds. I think there was a bit of reluctance in the sector when they first came out because charities were thinking that that's going to exclude, that's going to take away from my philanthropic capital if I encourage my donor to establish one. But it's been shown that private ancillary fund funding is normally additional funding. So the organisations that have done very well are the, um, the museums, the galleries, the symphonies, all of those who have that high net wealth um, patrons and they've encouraged them to establish private ancillary funds and through that they've created those um, reoccurring revenue streams. So it, it is hard. It's still a relationship. And I feel for many of the causes that aren't um, as engaged or as attractive to, um, you know, those high net wealth individuals, say, with, um, you know, child child type issues and those, it's, it's very hard for them to, to engage directly with high net wealth individuals that, um, that, that have or could establish a private entry fund. As I said earlier, I've, I've recently uh, made a point of becoming more financially literate and I've been reading a lot of books on the topic, um, which I've found really fascinating. And a quote that I've seen come up a few times, and it relates more to private wealth, is that uh, I think it was Warren Buffett that said it originally, that you need seven sources of income in order to become wealthy. And I wasn't so much interested in that from a personal wealth perspective as much as I thought, does the same rule apply to charities these days? Like we talk about all these different things, you know, pursuing government funding, pursuing public donations, building relationships with private ancillary funds, um, building relationships with corporates, setting up a social enterprise. Like there's all these ways that charities mm. can make an income these days. Should they be pursuing all of them in your view, or are they better off focusing on one and kind of hedging their bets that that will come through? Yes, it's a great question. For, for me, I think you should start with the sector you're in because um, if you look at that cause report, it's got the 26 different subsectors. And, and an example I'll give you is um, international aid, uh, which which is, you know, you know very well, is, um, is so heavily reliant on fundraising and philanthropic capital. And, and we as a team quite often would say it's almost too reliant on that. It's essentially money in, money spent. There's very little self-generation and there's very little government funding. Whereas if you were to go to um, an aged care as a, as a sector, it basically, it pretty much is getting all of its funding from self-generation, which is, you know, essentially it's residents um, paying rads and paying other type of um, deposits essentially that it's getting its funding from. So it, 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 aged care entities pretty much get no philanthropic capital, very limited amounts. So first, the first starting place for me is always look at the subsector you're in and look at the good thing about the ACNC data is you could pick a couple of very successful charities within your subsector and have a look at them and see how they get their revenue. Do they get it from government? Do they get it from self-generating as a business or do they get it from philanthropy? And I think you can learn a lot from the successful entities within your subsector. Um, I don't think you need to do everything. 
uh, I think you just need to do a few things very well. So uh, I think, you know, some sub-causes and then charities are more aligned to philanthropy, but you might find that they're very mass market driven and that's drying up and getting more competitive. They're not very good at private ancillary funds or corporates. So that's what they need to focus in on. Um, whereas others can be very good at philanthropy but get no government funding. And I've even had some relationships with, you know, charities that do that. They've never had a government grant, which to some philanthropists is very attractive. But from a diversification perspective, um, you know, if the philanthropy dries up, you know, how, how are they hedging themselves, if you like? Okay, I think the last thing I would love you to explain before we um, wrap up is from the the charitable side, uh, endowment funds. Um, so I think anyone that works in this sector probably is familiar with endowment funds or at least would hear the term come up quite a lot. Um, so can you explain what um, an endowment fund is and sort of the changing way that charities are investing their endowment funds and I know that's a huge question um so if you can just summarize what's what's happening in that space yeah sure no problem so um I mean endowments historically have come you know more out of the U.S. so endowments are essentially a a fund of capital which is long-term and often perpetual in nature so, so normally they, they can take two, two routes. They can either fund the organisation that they serve or they might be there for a, an income stream to um, provide some type of services. So, so the, the traditional endowments you often see are um, independent schools quite often have endowments and they're quite often scholarship driven. Um, and, you know, the, there's, there's numerous kind of other Universities, especially in the US, you hear of the, you know, the Harvard Endowment and Yale and Stanford, which are some of the largest endowments in the world. So, so, so essentially, an endowment is a pool of capital with a long-term time horizon. Because it's long-term in nature, most of the time, the fiduciaries are willing to take more risk. So they're they're willing to invest in more growth assets and less defensive assets. Because they're willing to say that, you know, markets go through cycles. So you're going to have ups and downs with markets here, but we're investing way into the future, let alone perpetually. So we're willing to take more risk because we're going to get a better return with that more risk, with a higher risk approach. Historically, endowments were were mostly structured so that the income that was derived from the investments was distributed. But because of, you know, markets being somewhat crazy in recent years, you're finding that um, a lot of endowments now are looking at a total return approach. So they might want to distribute 5% or 7% each year. So that might be just income. They might have enough income to do that. Or they might also have to take some capital off the table from the investment pool as well and distribute part of that. So so I hope, I hope it answers it. It's essentially just a pool of capital which is to be used into the future for an ongoing purpose, that, that more risk can be taken. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. To, to illustrate that sort of in my own words and tell me if I've got this right, so if a charity um, a charity would look to raise an endowment, um, potentially when they start up or potentially, you know, several years into their operations, so they would go out to market um, and ask, uh, you know, anyone really, um, high net individuals or organisations to contribute 
money um, to raise an endowment fund and that endowment fund might sit somewhere around a million or, or more dollars and then as you said they would look to use the interest earned on that endowment fund um, to fund some of their operations potentially some of their admin costs and then could actually dip into the endowment itself not just the interest um, if they needed it for a particular reason. Exactly, you did on the money. So essentially, they um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, essentially they um, sometimes they if the endowment can get large enough, it can cover the back office. So so it's very attractive for a philanthropist to go. I'm going to contribute to you know X charity because I know that the endowment's large enough that there's no you know admin or other costs associated with the organisations. And there are some cancer foundations around that are structured like that. Um, or, as you say, there might be endowments that are really mission-focused on uh, delivering a certain amount of research every year or funding a research fellow. Um, so they have to derive a certain amount of income so that they can fund that, that research every year um, into the future. So, so it's a way of, um, of future-proofing your organisation, if you like. Sometimes the questions are raised, uh, I mean, personally, I think they're, they're a great thing. Sometimes the two questions are raised is how big is big enough? Because if you look at, say, Harvard and other endowments, they're in the billions of dollars. Um, do they need to be that large? And, and also the question sometimes, how do you um, uh, associate your beneficiaries today compared to your beneficiaries tomorrow? So a lot of diseases you might hope aren't there in 20 or 30 years' time. So are you best off scaling an endowment maybe just for a 10-year period and then just drawing it all down? Well, why does the endowment have to last forever if you're hoping to put diseases out of business, if you like? Certainly, that's a great point. And I think probably a discussion for another time, but important to mention here is that any charity with an endowment would have a corresponding investment policy that dictates how that endowment is invested. And the nature of those investment policies um, differs quite significantly between charities, mainly around the the risk appetite, as well as the ethics of those investments. A hundred percent. The first question for me is always, what's the purpose of your assets? So what do you want to achieve from, from those assets? And then a question of risk. The risk is the most important question. How much risk are you willing to take? I mean, there are a lot of charities that got hurt in the GFC, essentially because they didn't understand what they're investing in. And secondly, you know, when when things went bad, they essentially, you know, didn't follow follow their policy or they didn't have a policy. So so an investment policy is really an important source of truth that the directors sign off on and are adherent to. It's your organisations there to own. And that dictates back to the investment manager how the assets should be appropriately managed. So I think it's really, really important that, um, you know, fiduciaries understand the risk that they take within investments. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a great point to finish on. Luke, thank you for explaining some really tricky financial concepts really comprehensively. Uh, I know I've learned a lot and I, I know our listeners will as well. So it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel. Hopefully they're still awake. So uh, as long as they are. <laughs> Wake up, guys. <laughs> Thanks. No, I enjoyed the, enjoyed the chat and uh, congratulations on the, on the podcast. It's great. Thank you. 